All of you have televisions, I'm sure, and some of you were probably riveted to the television for a bit yesterday as we watched the unfolding of the events in Pittsburgh. Anyone else see that? I thought we should begin this morning by praying for the folks in Pittsburgh specifically. There were 11 people killed in a synagogue yesterday morning, and four police officers were shot, wounded. And then the devastation to the lives of families that you can imagine. And we should pray for the folks in Pittsburgh, but in a larger sense, shouldn't we be praying for our nation? Uh, it's, a, it's a time that we need to pray. Election coming up, we know the polarization in our nation. And let's just pray this morning that the Lord would bring some sense of, some sense to our nation and uh, love for one another. Why don't you pray with me? Fathers, we watched yesterday uh, the unfolding of the events there. It's unimaginable the hatred that someone would have that would want to destroy a people, an ethnic group, simply because they belong to it. Just people of everyday life. And I pray for the families, the friends, for that assembly of people that have come together there. Their lives are destroyed. They're changed in a way that uh, they'll never be quite the same. Lord, I pray that you would intervene. I pray that you would speak peace into it through the Lord Jesus and that they would come to see that their hope is in him. And Lord, for our nation as a whole, as we approach an election with, uh, with these polarization, maybe as we've never seen it, I pray that there'd be a sense of, uh, of love for people that would come over our nation. And I know the only way that can happen is if your spirit prevails, is if the Lord Jesus becomes uh, the Lord of our nation and the one who leads us. So, Lord, we commit our great country, the United States, to you. Would you do a work of revival in this country? It'd be so good to see it start in alliance, Lord, that you do a work here and change the hearts of people so that even if there's political difference, there's love and compassion for others and always, always that we desire only the best for other people. God, I pray that that would be true and uh, we know that you are the only one who can make that happen. So we commit to you, our nation, in this morning. Lord, speak to us, we pray, through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're on where did the races come from. Somehow it seems appropriate with the events in our country right now. Uh, I have to start. This will be really brief. It won't take long. But where the races did not come from, we'll dispel these right off the bat. You know, there are people that believe that races developed as different strains of, of mankind developed at different times through evolution, and that some developed here and came to this level, others developed here and came to this level. In fact, when they were, when, when evolution was being written on and taught through the mid-1800s, um, they came across a people that were an unfamiliar people called the Aborigines in Australia. You've seen the pictures. 
And the Aborigines had lived in an isolated community in northern Australia, and they were as close to community probably as any that has existed on earth. There was no intermarriage from the outside. And so the gene pool was pretty pure as in terms of they were, they were people who had always married their own people. And consequently, you get certain features that are going to stand out. Uh, I'm not a geneticist. I'm not going to go any farther with that except to say that these were unique people. And you know that one time Darwin said he spoke of a civilized people and an uncivilized people. And he was talking about people who had developed through evolution to a higher level and a lesser level. And when they looked at the Australian Aborigines, they saw people who were of a lesser level. And while they're writing in the 1850s about the Aborigines and some of the things they said about them, they were racially driven. They, they had to be. They were driven by a feeling of superiority and inferiority on the other half. And they, they, I know they, they were driven by the fact that these people were different. They were distinct. And, and while they're writing about this, and this is all unfolding in the journals of the evolutionists, there's a man born. And I won't get his, the, the last name just right, but his name was David Unipon. And it's spelled U-N-A-I-P-O-N if you want to look him up. Interesting man. David was a writer. He was an inventor. He was a, a man who would go about preaching scripture. He taught in many schools and churches. And he became an advocate for the Aborigine people. And David was born during this time in that section of northern Australia where the Aborigines community existed. He, he was born and raised in that isolation. He went through his early grades in a mission school, but never really had any secondary education. And yet, when they wrote of his life at the end, he lived into his 90s. He lived into the mid-1900s. And in his 90s, he's still inventing. At 18, he is already an avid reader, reading philosophy, He's, he's learning music. He became quite an accomplished musician. He's beginning to travel about and speaking to congregations and to schools. And he ended up writing the history of the Aborigines people and actually recorded a lot of their, their mythology and their legends. And, and his books are still in existence today. But here's, here's what caught my attention on that is that while they're writing that the Aborigines are less than the, the people like us, the Caucasians, what they were talking about, when they hadn't developed as far, and some said never will, cannot, here's a man born among them who technologically was well advanced to what probably any of us would typically be. And what they began to realize is that that community of Aborigines had practical technology. For instance, the boomerang. They invented the boomerang. Uh, and amazing that that boomerang can do what it can do. I've tried them. I can't make them work. But they hunt with the boomerang, and the boomerang was a technological advance that was developed by this people. They developed a spear 
that I am told was so advanced, even though it was a spear, that it would travel uh, like three times as far and fast as any spear that had been used because of the way it was developed. And so these people in their practical technology were very advanced, and yet they're a lesser people. So saying all that to say that, no, uh, the races did not develop at different times. They did not evolve at different times or even at the same time and some only developed further. That's, in fact, I don't even like saying that because it, it demeans of people that, that shouldn't be. The second thing, out of Scripture, people have tried to point to certain things and say that's where races came from. And let's just very quickly say out of, out of Genesis 4, the mark of Cain, have you ever heard that, that that's where races came from? The races didn't come from the mark of Cain. Okay. That mark was on Cain, not his family, and they didn't come from there. And then later in Genesis 9, where uh, Ham and, and actually Canaan was marked, the same thing's true. Uh, that mark was not carried on to the family. That was a mark on a person. And so they didn't come from any of these marks in the book of Genesis. That's no explanation for races. And so where did races come from? Where did racial distinction come from? You know, I decided this week to just kind of work through Scripture, work through Genesis, and see if I could pick up something that would say, that's where races came from. And so why don't you track with me as we work through Genesis a little bit, and I'm going to start in chapter 1, back in the passage we've read numerous times over these weeks. In chapter 1, if you have your Bible, you're going to, I'm going to thumb through some things. In 127, Genesis 127, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in the origin, we see mankind appearing on this earth. At, at the creation, hand, creating hand of God. That's where they came from. And maybe that's all we need to say. Maybe we don't need to say anything more. We could just quit there. But let's not do that. Let's work on through. So you look through the, the family of Adam. And you see that in chapter 4, it didn't go well. The Cain and Abel story, right? Then you come to chapter 5. So look at chapter 5. We're still in the family of Adam. His family is growing. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So, so far, what do we have in the human race? We just have one race that was created by God, right? Can we agree on that? God created him. We see that Adam's progeny, as they begin to expand, they still are spoken of as a people created in the image of God. So go on. Next is the great story of Noah. And uh, you look through Noah and you, you search for any kind of a hint. You'll find one. You come to uh, chapter 9, kind of the climax of that story. And chapter 9, verse 1 says that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the earth is still unpopulated. 
And the Lord says, Noah, your children are going to go out and populate the earth. So the people who populated the earth came from who? Came from Noah. And Noah came from who? Came from Adam. And Adam came from who? Came from God, right? Are we in agreement so far? It's all pretty simple. And look at 919. Uh, the three sons of Noah, uh, and from these, notice the end of that sentence, these are the sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And so, we've got God creating Adam, and then in Adam's family is Noah, he was spared with his three, three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and from these three sons, the earth was populated. It, are we... In agreement so far? We all agree with that? I don't know what else you could say. There aren't people coming from any other source. They're coming through the line of Adam, through the line of Noah, and through Noah's family. All right, that's, that's through chapter 9. Look at chapter 10, and it gives the generations of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the people then that were born, sons born to them after the flood. So the family expands, the obvious, and the family grows. Chapter 11, this family grows and grows, and the earth is being populated. Chapter 11, we have the story of the Tower of Babel, and it says that the whole earth had one language and the same words. But then something's going to happen. So the, the people still are gathered in a general locality. They're still all speaking the same language, and what did they contrive in their hearts and minds? They're going to build a tower. And they're going to, together in their rebellion against God, they're going to build a tower that's going to reach up to God. And, and explaining that fully is beyond my understanding, is what they were thinking. I just know that they were in violation and that, that God had decided that it was time to do something about it. When you read through chapter 11, therefore, uh, the place that they, that they lived in in verse 9 says it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So do you see what's happening? Now, the children of, of, of Noah have grown, and through his sons, they've grown, and they've populated this region. And these people, in their wickedness, had decided to rebel against God, and God says, enough, I'm going to spread them out. And since they are going to be determined to stay together, I'll spread them out in a way that they can't stay together. So he confuses their language. You ever been in a place where you were the only one who spoke a particular language, like English, like most of us? Greg has. I uh, was in the Ukraine a number of years ago, and Ashley was staying in Moldova, and they put us in the houses of local Christians. So I, I knew I was safe, but I went in with an elderly couple, and in this little cottage in a village in Moldova in the middle of nowhere, can't get there from here. And they spoke only Ukrainian. Uh, Ukrainian, very close to Russian, but slightly different language. And, of course, I spoke only English. And they uh, probably spoke Romanian, as many of the people there did in Moldova, but I didn't speak Romanian either. 
So we did a lot of grunting and pointing and so forth, but it was really unnerving because I really couldn't communicate to them. Um, I wanted to take a shower, and I was really reluctant to ask them. I hadn't any idea how to ask them. Fortunately, every few hours, and certainly by the, the end of the day or the next morning, we'd have somebody come in that could translate. And so we had a way to communicate. And they were lovely people. And they had a beautiful garden. They had a cellar where they kept all their produce. And they walked me around and showed me all these things. And, and they were wonderful people and very friendly. And I felt safe with them. But I couldn't communicate with them. And it would have been really hard to live there. Now think of a people that you don't know at all, that you're not sure you can trust. We were in the family of God together. And what would happen if you were forced into a, a close proximity of these people? What you would begin to do is say, does anybody speak English? You ever, ever been in that environment? Does anybody here speak English? And then if, they, if you find them, what would you do? You'd move with that crowd and you'd begin to commun- and pretty soon you'd form community, which is what happened here, is that they formed community based around language, and pretty soon, of course, based around culture. So they developed, each of them developed their own culture. Culture is a strange thing. Culture changes, it's very fluid. But culture's built around things like religion, it's about re- built around social practice, it's built around language. And things that can change over a generation. But people began to develop cultures. And so they spread out through the earth. Then as you keep working through Genesis, you come to chapter 12. And chapter 12 is one of the great transitional chapters in Scripture. Uh, Creation's all done. And the creation story is done. And now God's going to call out a man and a nation through him. The man was uh, Abraham. And so you see that story, and he says, I'm going to take you to a land, a land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to give you this land. Still, though, how many races do we have, if you want to call them races? How many do we have so far? One. Everybody in agreement? We have one race. All right. So let's look to the New Testament and see if we can find any help, because as you continue thinking through Genesis, you're not going to find any help on races. It just it doesn't exist. From from there on, you have the, uh, the the seed of Abraham building a nation. That's the story of Genesis, and you're not going to find races develop out of that. But look in Acts chapter 17 with me for a minute. Acts 17. I'm going to read an extended passage out of Acts 17. I'm going to start all the way back at verse 16. Paul is in Athens. He's talking to people who consider themselves a cut above. They're pretty proud of themselves. They're people who have education, they're leaders, and they're people who meet together and they pool all of this wisdom that they have. So these were an elite group. And he, he's going to speak to them and, and listen to the things that he says in Athens to the, to the people who are gathered on Mars Hill. In uh, Acts 16, started, or 17 rather, started verse 16. Now when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, 
and in the marketplace every day and with those who happen to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which is a uh, also translated Mars Hill. It was a place where they met together where they pooled their wisdom. And they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except in hearing or telling something new. So Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I pursue perceive that you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I find also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. Now here's the heart of this. He's speaking this to these people who see themselves as elite. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it The Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything from us. Since he himself, look here, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place. And we'll stop there. So, what did Paul say? Where did man come from? Just what we saw in Genesis, right? That mankind was created by God. And incidentally, the word race as we use it, I do not believe it's used anywhere in Scripture. I can't find it. The only time that race is used is about four times, and it's the kind of races that Randy did two weeks ago. Did you, guys, did you guys know that Randy qualified for the Boston Marathon two weeks ago? Huh? Uh, well, those kind of races are mentioned, and I think only about four times. The other kind of races are not. And so it's an invention. Listen, folks, racial discrimination and racial distinction is man-made. It's not of God. There's only one race. That's the human race. It's the race created by God and created by God to know and love and serve him. Only one race. And, and if, if the church of Jesus Christ does not get the word out that there's only one race, we have no hope. Do we think the scientific community is going to come to this conclusion? Do we think we're going to get help from there? I don't believe so. I don't think we are. We have to be... The, the people who, who proclaim the good news that Christ died for the human race, for all of us. And, and Paul makes that message clear. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a account that I read that a medical professional was teaching a group of would-be doctors. And uh, I don't want to get too graphic here, but apparently one of the exercises they go through is they actually dissect cadavers. And he said, um, 
he asked the class, he said, can you tell a person's socioeconomic uh, condition based on what you observe from the inside? And they said, no. He said, can you tell a person's skin color by what you observe on the inside? And they said, no. And so he asked a couple more questions. And finally, one of the students got it right. He said, the only thing we can tell by looking on the inside is is that's a human being. And isn't that all the Church of Jesus Christ needs to know? <laughs> I thought, how, what a parallel. We don't need to know anything other than that's a human being. And whether it's the Aborigines or the people of the highest society level, it doesn't matter. It's all the same. Christ died for people, all people, everywhere. And he loves them equally. And aren't you glad? Little poor kid from down in Lakemore, he loved me. And he died for my sins. And I'm glad. I'm glad I didn't have to have some great social attainment and some great education for him to love me. I'm glad I didn't have to be handsome and tall and curly hair and all. I did. I'm just glad of all of that because he just loved me for who I was and he loves all people. It's a damnable thing to isolate people groups and, and somehow to even, even begin to intimate that God doesn't love those people the same. Galatians 3 says this, For in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is no male, no female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you are Christ and you are Abraham's offspring, the man of faith, and heirs according to the promise. You know, there's still racism in the church of Jesus Christ. It still exists and it needs to be gone. Because one of these days, we're going to be with people of all, and I, I shouldn't even be using the word races. We're going to be using, we're going to be meeting with people and living with people of all ethnicity, all ethnic backgrounds and all cultures. We're all going to live together. And we better get used to the idea. Revelation talks about a future scene of worship. In Revelation 5, it says, uh, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe, every language, and every nation, and you've made them kingdom, kingdom of priests to our Lord. Of all people, he redeemed them. Then again in Revelation 7, a similar passage, it says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all people and all languages, standing before the throne of God and crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. One of these days, we're going to be together. You know, in the fall, there is hatred. In the fall, there's jealousy. And in the fall, there's racial divide. Uh, their self-promotion, it's all in the fall. But in the cross, there's love, there's acceptance, and there's unity. We are people of the cross. And so should that characterize us. 
You know, Christians must lead the way. In 1952, some of you probably have heard this story, but it's true that Billy Graham was going to a deep south city. He was going to hold meetings. And when he got there, there were ropes to segregate the, the different ethnic groups. And, and so people of light skin were to be here and people of darker skin were to be here and they weren't to be able to come together. And to his credit, Billy Graham said, I'll not preach to that. And I guess he and his crew went out and physically took down the ropes. And from that day forward, he would never speak to a segregated group, or at least a group that was segregated on purpose. Today, about 14% of the churches in the United States are multi-ethnic. Do you know how hard it is to build a multi-ethnic church? It is really difficult. I've tried over the years somewhat, maybe too feeble, but because we each have our culture and we each have our value system, it's hard to bring those things together. And so the fact that we're, we're not necessarily all multi-ethnic churches doesn't trouble me so much. What troubles me is that when we devalue our brothers and sisters who have a different culture or a different ethnicity, we can't do that. They are equal value to the Lord. Does that make sense? You know, I, I wish we could come together, and I wish we could be in, in one body. But in doing that, you know what's got to happen is that we've got to absorb some of their culture, and they've got to absorb some of our culture, and we've got to come together as a new culture. And, and that's hard, just hard to do. Our, our, even our language is a little different, and it's difficult to do. I, I mean, I've watched in, in the black churches, and some of these guys are such marvelous communicators, I would absolutely put their whole crowd to sleep within moments. You know, I can't do what they do. I just can't do it. And, and they are amazing communicators, and they say something. And I, I can't do that. It's just not, it's not within me. It's not part of me. And yet, they have vibrant, living, Christ-professing churches who are speaking the truth to their culture. Well, regardless of whether we can come together, don't you wish we could? Don't you wish we could come together? You know, we've tried, and let's keep trying. But regardless of whether we're successful, we've got to love our brothers and sisters and not devalue them. And maybe they say it a little different. Maybe they look a little different. But do you think the Lord appreciates the heart of those people just like he appreciates our heart? You know, we sang earlier... Uh, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Is that titled to that? To be a sanctuary. And we sang, and I sense you folks meant what you said. Help me to be a sanctuary. Help me to be a dwelling place for God. And you know, there are people in those churches who are singing it the same heart that we have. You think God's pleased with that as they sing out to him? I think so. And wouldn't it be great if we could come together? Well, one of these days we're going to. You know, and... Let's just think about this for a second. In the 1600s, especially, that was seemed to be the period where it became um, practiced the most. The Africans were taken from their people, taken from their villages. And we've seen 
seen pictures of this. It was awful. Taken from their family. Taken away. The dads were taken. Many times, many times the wives were taken. Separated. Separated from their children. And they're sent first to Europe and then later to the Americas to be slaves. And so when you saw someone of dark skin on the street, what did it say to you, especially in the South? What did it say to you? It said they're slaves, right? That's what it spoke to you. And that in itself, I think, was such an offense to God from the beginning. But there was a stereotype that was developed. And those, that group, that people group, that ethnic group, was devalued because not of anything that they did, but because of the position in society that they had. It wasn't their fault that they were slaves. They were forced into it. And you know, that stereotype is still alive in America today. And we still battle it, folks, whether you know it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, and whether sometimes it's, it's in your awareness, in your conscious or not, uh, we still battle it. We've got to battle it. You know, I like basketball. And let me tell you uh, something that happens to me sometimes. I'll give you a little true confession. I'm watching a basketball game, and very often, if you're watching, you will see five young black men out on a basketball floor on one team and maybe four and one on the other team. And I watch that, and I there's something kind of wells up in me a little bit. Anybody else have this? And I think it's resentment. I resent a little bit that there aren't more people like me but then it wouldn't be a very interesting basketball game. Uh, but, but what is that? What drives that? What drives it? I think it's a subtle racism. And when we see it, we've got to back up and confess it to God and ask him to show us if it's racism. We've got to be sensitive to this because we've got to fix it. Christ's church has got to fix it if it's going to be fixed. The laws have changed in our nation, but hearts haven't necessarily changed. Uh, we like to be with people just like us. Well, young, old, all skin colors, all tones. Incidentally, interesting article. You know the difference in dark skin and light skin? There's a couple chemical compounds in the skin that makes some people darker than others. One of them is melanin, the other one I think is carotene. And uh, melanin, if more, makes darker. If you have none, it makes for albino. And, and then carotene tends to make the skin more yellow. And so there's chemicals that make this up. And it's probable that if someone lives in an environment where there's a lot of sun, that they would, that naturally your body adapts to that. It's not evolution, it simply adapts, and that you have more of that than less. And so if you live in Northern Europe, you're probably gonna look something like this. Uh, and if you live in an area where there's a lot of sun, you're not gonna look like this. And over a period of time. And so inside is the same heart, inside is the same brain, and other than environmental isolation 
like the Aborigines, who were isolated from education. Other than that, they're just like us. Just exactly like us. And the Lord loves them just the same as he loves us. And there's no us in them. I can't even use those terms. Uh, We are all one people. I'm going to close with this out of Acts 10. You remember that um, Peter was not excited about going to the Gentiles, and the Lord gave him an assignment. Go to Cornelius, Acts 10. Cornelius was not only a Gentile, but he was a Roman soldier. So Peter had a lot of reason to hate him, not to want to be around him. But when he called him, he wanted to show him something. He wanted to show him that God cares about people, even people who are different. And then he says this in Acts 10.34, Truly, Peter said, I understand that God shows no partiality. He's no respecter of persons. And, and that word, respecter of persons, comes from one word, which means to look on the face of. Now that's intriguing to me, is that it says that God doesn't look on the face of people. He's not going to look at the skin tone. He's not going to look at whether they're handsome or not handsome. He's not going to even look if they're smart or not so smart. He's going to look inside them. He's going to look in their heart. He's going to look in their mind. And he's going to try to draw them to himself regardless. He's no respecter of persons. He's not going to look on the face regardless of where they come from. If he isn't affected by the look of the face, can we be? I don't think so. Maybe it's a time for us to kind of just quiet ourselves before the Lord and, and say, Lord, help me. I, I know that in, in me there is just naturally some sense of maybe being better, maybe someone being less than. And Lord, would you take that from me? Can we pray that way this morning? And can we pray that God gives us a heart for people? You know, Marty, um, at our a uh, trick-or-treat night. One of the things that so impressed me and has for the last four years was the ethnic makeup of that group. Was anybody else notice it? Uh, I see head shaking. And we had um, more mixed ethnicity families than you'll see almost anywhere. Is this our alliance? I think so. And as God commissioned us to be in alliance, to reach our alliance, I think so. And so we can't look at the face. We can't look at the skin. The Lord loves people, and he loves you. And I trust that you know him this morning, that you're walking with him, and that your heart is to have his heart toward people. Let's pray. Father, we confess that, I confess that in me there can well up a, this sense of resentment when I look at others that are different. Maybe that don't talk just like I talk or perhaps don't look just like I look, that there can be a natural resentment. God, would you help me? What, what I want, 
what I want for all of us is that we would see people exactly like you see people. That we would see the faces of people exactly like you see the faces of people. And that we would not be respecter of persons. That we wouldn't respect, Lord, people for what they had attained in life or their wealth or their education or the looks or the color of their skin. But that we would see all people as objects of your love. God, we confess that is in all things we need your help. We need you, Lord, to speak to us through your spirit and through your word to make us to be a people who love like Jesus loves. Help us, we pray in his name. Amen.